bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. So an organization in British Columbia called Pacific Wild came out with a big press release earlier this week. It had put in a request a number of months ago to the BC government requesting through an FOI the veterinary photographic records of wolves killed in the caribou recovery areas. The photographs are taken so that the veterinarians can review and confirm placements of the shots uh, and assess that the wolves are being taken according to um, humane um, practices and standards. So they fought the government to get the photographs through an FOI. The government initially refused to give the photographs because they knew that the organization was just going to put them out in the public and try to make the caribou recovery program look terrible and apply leverage on the government to cancel the the wolf control program. So anyways, there must have been like lawyer stuff going on in the background. And I agree at the end of the day, a government can't withhold public records uh, from an FOI, you know, as long as there isn't, you know, personal information, that sort of stuff that isn't um, FOIable. Anyways, they released the photographs. Uh, The organization uh, went public with it. And I saw headlines like gruesome and inhumane uh, stuff, stuff like this. Um, it, I think it was designed to be like a shock and awe type campaign, warning graphic pictures. That was <clears throat> another one that I would see in the, um, the news stories covering it. So anyways, I reviewed the entire record set, 46 records, photographs of wolves taken in the field after the sharpshooters had killed them. And in my opinion, 100% of those records were humane instant deaths on those animals. So we're talking head shots, uh, spine shots, neck shots, and um, shots placed through the vital organs, uh, chest, lungs, heart, all that sort of stuff. So... You know, the wolf call takes place, the wolf control program takes place during the winter time. So you shoot an animal, sometimes there's blood on the snow. And yeah, they're not like the most, you know, picturesque pictures, but they are what they are. They're veterinary records. And so in my opinion, the sharpshooters and the pilots that are involved in the caribou recovery program um, are doing an amazing job. There was criticisms in the paper that... Um, I think I even saw things like the statements were made that the headshots were uh, inhumane. Uh, they weren't instantly killing the animals. How could um, how could a sharpshooter from a helicopter that's moving and an animal's moving have any chance of hitting and killing it humanely? Well, they are. Um, they are amazing uh, at what they do. And I congratulate them for, um, you know, doing a great job. So the wolf control program is helping caribou herds recover in northern BC. Caribou herds that whose growth and recovery is limited by wolf predation. 
the Wolf Control Program is helping. So this whole shock and awe campaign of these photographs, you know, it just kind of fizzled in the, in the media. There was a couple of newspapers seemed to have picked up the story after Pacific Wild uh, released their pictures and their press releases or whatever they do. And um, it just seems to have fizzled out as quickly as it came. There was just, they didn't really get any traction. And, you know, I, I don't know why. Uh, maybe there's other things going on in the news or whatever. I'm kind of seeing a bit of a trend where I think the public is tired of this stuff. Maybe the public is getting more educated about the wolf control program uh, and its positive benefits for preventing caribou from going extinct or being extirpated from uh, their traditional ranges and they're just tired of these campaigns um, smear campaigns on what the conservationists are doing to recover caribou so if that's the case I am happy to see uh, the tide shift against uh, this organization so on the topic of caribou recovery, so in British Columbia, there are three maternal penning projects. So a caribou maternal penning project is essentially a large enclosure where biologists go out and capture uh, cows in the wintertime, late winter. They bring them into the maternal pens. Uh, they check for their pregnancy. Then the pregnant cows stay in the pens they rear the calves, or like they're, they're, they, their calves are born in the pens. They grow until uh, mid-early summer, and then the caribou are released to go back into their uh, native range and rejoin the other caribou that are out there. So it's to bolster the population. The pens are designed to allow the cows to survive the winter, to give birth, to rear the young until they're much more mobile, and keep predators away from them while they're in the maternal pens. Caribou biologists say of any ungulate that there is in the world that the caribou is the most domesticatable animal, which is why um, the caribou has domesticated from all across the Scandinavian countries and through uh, Siberia. Uh, they're just an animal that <clears throat> is fairly gentle, fairly mild manner, not high strung and easily um, easily domesticatable by, by shepherds. So the potential of maternal pens rearing and growing and recovering endangered caribou herds is, is quite high. In Canada, uh, captive breeding has brought two species back from the brink of extinction, the whooping crane and the peregrine falcon. So um, I'm all behind the maternal pens. The key is, is when those cows and the calves are released in the early part of the summer to go back into their historical range, they have to be going onto a landscape that's not predator rich, which is where the care the uh, wolf control program comes in. You take away that wolf control program, the caribou maternal penning program just about comes obsolete because you're just going to basically be feeding uh, wolves by turning these cows and calves lo loose into a predator rich environment. So one of the maternal pens in uh, south central British Columbia in the Columbia Selkirk mountain range near Nacusp, the BC community of Nacusp. Uh, this winter they captured 10 cows and I think they have a total of 13 in the um, maternal pen now. Uh, most of those 
animals were captured from the central Selkirk herd, which is quite close to the cusp. However, one lone cow was captured out of the national parks north of Nacusp from the Columbia South Herd. She was the last remaining animal in the Columbia South Herd, which was just wandering around by herself. They captured her, moved her out of the national parks into the Nacusp Maternal Penning Project. So great news on this project. The 10 cows that were captured uh, and moved this winter, nine of them had been confirmed pregnant. So in addition to the older calves that they also captured, um, I think three, and put into the Nacusp maternal pen, there will be nine calves this spring that will be born and potentially 12 calves that will be released back into the Columbia Selkirk herd and hopefully will live uh, another year. And then next year, more cows are caught, more calves survive, released, and that's how they grow the population. So great work by conservationists here in um, the south central part of British Columbia. The Arrow Lakes Caribou Society is um, running this maternal pen. They're collecting the food for the caribou. They're looking after uh, the pens and the safety of the caribou. So a uh, huge shout out to the Arrow Lakes Caribou Society for all of the great work they're doing. And really, this is true caribou conservation. Um, trying to glorify gruesome pictures of wolves removed from the areas in northern British Columbia aren't helping caribou. What's going on in these maternal pens are directly benefiting caribou. So I don't know if you've heard this story. Um, it was when there was the big biodiversity conference in Montreal last year where a bunch of the, the nations of the world gathered to talk about um, biodiversity conservation. That's when the government of Canada made an announcement that it's planning to protect 25% of the lands and oceans in Canada by the year 2025 and 30% by the year 2030. <clears throat> And it called on other countries of the world to do the same thing. So I've been seeing more and more stories in the hunting and fishing world about concerns about this initiative to protect 30% of Canada land and oceans uh, in the next seven years. And the fear that it's going to exclude fishing and hunting from the land base. So... There are a few examples floating around out there about protected areas that were created and then, you know, things like ATVs were excluded, you know, from those areas. And those sorts of things are always going to happen on a case-by-case -case basis in conservation, generally where some sort of use is unsustainable for, for the land. That's just part of conservation uh, management. But I think the the overall arching fear and... And what's happening is, is there's a map of Canada <clears throat> that shows what 30% of Canada would look like if it were in protected areas. And that map is being promoted sort of <clears throat> with the message that this is what Canada is going to look like if all these areas are put into place and hunting and fishing is restricted in those areas. So at a very high level, I've looked at this map of Canada and what it appears 
is like Canada is not going to create a whole bunch of more national parks and then kick out um, hunting out of those parks because you can fish in most national parks. What it looks like the strategy is, because this is a very short time frame, um, 25% in the next two years and 30% in the next uh, uh, seven years, is the mapping exercise in the map of Canada that shows 30% protected areas are every type of land designation that's attached to a conservation objective that already exists. And not every one of the conservation designations are lands that exclude hunting, fishing, trapping, uh, or other resource industries for, for that fact. So for example, when I look at uh, southeastern BC where I live, one of the areas that's highlighted as being a protected area is what we have here that's mapped as ungulate winter range. It's simply just the land base where ungulates come out of the Rocky Mountains and winter in the low valleys. There are some best management practices for what goes on and doesn't go on in ungulate winter range. But there's still forestry, there's still mining, there's still hunting, there's still trapping, there's still fishing, um, there's still cattle grazing, but it's ungulate winter range and it has a particular designation. In northern BC, there's the largest wilderness area in the province called the Spatsizi Plateau Wilderness Area. It has guide outfitting operations in it, it has resident hunting, it has limited entry permit hunting for stone sheep, moose, caribou, and it's always been that way. So it's shown as a protected area, but it's a wilderness designation. There's no mining or industry or highways or roads or railways in it. And wildlife conservation is a primary focus of the Spatsizi wilderness area, but it's not necessarily excluding hunting and fishing. Uh, the Musqua Kachika management area in northeastern BC is the same way. In fact, they actually do oil and gas exploration in the Muscoa Kachika management area, but they have very high standards. And when they're done, the reclamation work, just these, you know, roads and stuff on the landscape just about disappear because wildlife and biodiversity conservation are forefront in the Muscoa Kachika management area and you can still hunt in it. So I, I just kind of want to speak to this in case you come across this whole thing. Um, about 30% being protected, that that's somehow going to automatically translate, translate into a loss of hunting or fishing. It's not the case. Um, some of the stuff I've read said, well, in the future, it could lead to loss of hunting and fishing. And I'm, I'm not so concerned about that. Just because land has protected status and its conservation primary conservation objective is protecting biodiversity and wildlife. I don't see that as a bad thing and I don't see that necessarily as the reason why hunting and trapping and fishing has to be excluded from those areas. So um, I'll continue to follow this story and report on it. Right now it doesn't seem to be something that we should get overly concerned about. Ocean protection is probably where Canada is going to need to create more new marine protected areas and things like commercial fishing could get excluded from those as well as offshore, um, you know, oil and gas drilling. But I haven't seen 
too much of that unfold yet, but as far as land access for hunting and fishing, um, I don't think it's a huge red flag right now, but I think some folks are pointing it out, you know, with, with that in mind that let's flag this now, um, have some concerns articulated about it, uh, but I'm not seeing anything any signals yet that this is land that's going to be excluding hunting and fishing it just seems like it's going to be more of an accounting process of just adding up what already is got some sort of a protected conservation status on the land even if it's multiple use and using that to contribute to the 30 percent i don't think canada is going to be in a situation where it's going to take a whole bunch more of its land out of production from the natural resource industries and create national parks. So not uh, not super concerned, but like a lot of things, I'll keep my eye on it. In Manitoba, um, there is a proposal that's been put forth to government, the Manitoba government from First Nations in Northern Man Manitoba to exclude all non-Indigenous licensed hunters from hunting in Northern Manitoba. So the Manitoba Wildlife Federation and the Manitoba Lodges and Outfitters Association has written a letter to the Premier and Cabinet Ministers of Manitoba, obviously objecting to this proposal being moved forward within government. This is all I really know about this topic right now. If you're interested, go to the Manitoba Wildlife Federation website and they have published the letter um, that they wrote to the Premier and the Cabinet Ministers uh, with a bit more detail in it. So that would be a huge, huge precedent-setting case, uh, I think, for all of Canada. A uh, huge loss in Manitoba if something like that were um, to exclude the entire northern half of a province from licensed hunters and, and uh, outfitters from accessing the public resource there. So another uh, group in British Columbia called the Fur Bearers of BC, like Pacific Wild, um, they do some good work for biodiversity and um, sm small fur bears and stuff, but they also have, like Pacific Wild, a number of anti-hunting, anti-trapping uh, initiatives and campaigns. The one that the Fur Bearers of BC just released recently was an issue about dogs and cats that are caught in traps in British Columbia, trappers traps. And it was information they obtained from an FOI and they published the numbers, uh, I think between 2015 and 2021, it was uh, 74 dogs and cats, 66 dogs, eight cats uh, were caught in traps uh, it's an average of 10 per year, 10.6 per year or something like that. So uh, red flags here. So whenever I see somebody present information on a period of time, I always ask, what's the rationale for that period of time? So this is data between 2015 and 2021. Why is that the baseline period? In my experience, a lot of times a certain select set of data from a larger time period 
is taken in order to show data from a very narrow window that fits a narrative. So an increasing trend or a downward increasing, decreasing trend, say in a 10-year period out of the last 50 years can be spun into whatever narrative you want. So that was my first red flag. Why that time period? Average of 10.6 animals per year. Averages can be very misleading because you can have a 10-year period where there's 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, and then 10 caught in one year, and the average is 10 per year. Doesn't mean there are 10 animals caught in traps every year. So other red flags. They, the fur bears also reported that their FOI data showed that 15% of these dogs and cats that were caught died. And that is incredibly unfortunate, very sad. I would hate to lose any one of my dogs um, to, a, to a trap or for any other reason. I get that. No trapper wants this to happen. But let's look at the numbers here and what this means in the big picture. If 15% of these animals died over a seven-year time frame, that's less than two per year are fatally injured, mortally injured, killed. Less than two per year, and the province of BC is just under one million square kilometers. So that in itself paints, I think, the magnitude of this problem with commercial trapping and pets. I feel for two people a year, you know, whose pets unfortunately die by getting caught in a trapper's trap. But in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty safe to be out in the backcountry and trappers are doing a pretty good job not catching people's pets. So it's a different way of looking at it. Now, other red flags, eight cats. How many people go into the backcountry snowshoeing and cross-country skiing in the wintertime and take their cat with them? Probably none. So I think what we're talking about here are domestic cats, probably in urban or rural settings that are just allowed to run loose. They go out at nighttime, kill wildlife, birds and mice and rodents and whatnot, and they've got caught in private land traps or potentially in neighboring properties who have traps set for things like skunks or, you know, raccoons or squirrels or other pest rodents or something like that. So it makes me wonder why cats were even included in this number. Sure, it's going to bump it from 66 up to 74, but I really question the legitimacy legitimacy of these cats being on the landscape. Now, here's another thing. They, the, the fur bears broke down their data about where these incidents occurred. 60-something percent of them occurred on crown land, which everybody is allowed to go to. However, 43% of the domestic pets caught in traps were caught on private land or the owners had reported they did not know the status of the land that they were on. 43%. So that is telling me 
that people with domestic pets are either trespassing on private land, they do not know whether they're on private land or crown land, or their pets are running loose and going on to private land, and they're getting caught in potentially and lawfully set traps on private land. So if your pet or you are trespassing on private land and there's lawfully set traps on that land, that's not the trapper's fault. You're trespassing, your pet trespassing, and that's a liability and a responsibility that lies with a pet owner. Now, another red flag in the articles that were published on the fur bear releasing this information. There was a statement in the Victoria News article that I read that people in the backcountry find traps set close to roads for bears, cougars, and mice. Red flag. No one traps bears in British Columbia. It's illegal. No one traps cougars in British Columbia. It's illegal. And no commercial trapper traps mice. You need too many of them to make a fur coat. So where does that come from? It's To me, it's just information that's put out there to to like confuse like the conversation people immediately oh they're trapping bears and cougars how horrible and it's like well trapping is done in the winter time and bears are hibernating so like like there's there's just some questions about the integrity of how much this group wanted to present the truth they're calling for setbacks from around public areas and communities where i live around the communities of Kimberley and Cranbrook, there are no commercial trap lines in and around communities. They're vacant areas. Fur bearers are saying signs should be mandatory. So they're not. They are best management practices and everywhere I've been and I've put them up, signs are put up at the start of roads, um, trails, snowmobile lines, where you're beyond that point there's active trapping going on. Trappers will put flagging that says active trap line on it to mark the trail that goes into the bush where their traps are set. They don't have big signs by each spot where a trap is set. That's just impractical. Now, the other part of this is some trappers don't like to mark where their traps are in the, and they, they put them off the roads purposely to hide them because animal rights and anti-trapping people come along and ruin the traps, which is illegal. Sometimes trappers have their fur stolen out of the traps. So this is a really touchy issue of traps being vandalized and being more explicit in showing the public where the traps are. So like I said, trappers, the best management practices at the start of a road or a trail going into area, you'll have a big sign that says active trapping. I've been given reports that people have found trapping areas, bait areas, and they've taken their dogs in there and run them around trying to get the dogs caught in a trap or a snare so they can film this and then put it out on social media. Like, I don't know what kind of person it would take to do that, but I mean, 
that's that's pretty sick. The fur bears are also saying these signs that are placed up by each trap should have um, the trapper's name and contact information on it. So because trapping is a commercial tenure, the name of the individual is actually protected under personal privacy laws in the province. So they're not obligated to put their name on a sign. When you have people that are going to go out and destroy traps, steal them, ruin them, set them off, like what trapper would want to put his name out there? Because that just opens up the door for crazy people to track them down and harass them or damage their prop property or find their homes and their families and this sort of thing. So that's why that information is protected personal private information and, and it's not published. What is published, and you can freely get this information, is where the boundaries of registered trap lines are. You can download it as a layer and put it on Google Earth. And that then becomes, in my opinion, a responsibility of the, the, the pet owner going into an area to recreate to do the due diligence and look to see whether or not they're going into an area that's a registered trap line. In the province, a commercial tenure like mine's actually have the legal authority to post no trespassing and enforce that even if the mine is on crown land because they're a safety hazard to the public. I don't think there's a trapper in this province that would want to have the legal authority as a commercial tenure holder to post their trap lines as no trespassing because it's a commercial industrial activity that's taking place on the on the land that it has risks to people and pets and so without written um, permission you're not allowed in there i don't think trappers want that the the public land is multi-use everybody gets to go out there but we all need to get along so you know the bottom line here is when these groups are constantly attacking trappers, um, dehumanizing them, um, um, saying everything they do is unethical and inhumane and they're sick people and there's no place for trapping and it's cruel, which is the complete opposite of what trappers are about and what they do. There is no relationship here. There is no relationship in communities for these groups to come to trappers and, and or individuals to call up trappers and say, you know, um, hey, we're going to go in backcountry ski in su such and such an area. The trapper's like, you know, hey, no worries. I'm, I'm not in there this winter. You know, go in there out it all you want. I'm over in such and such a valley, you know, or, or you know, whatever. Like there isn't that, that line of communication between members of the community. And when trappers are being constantly bombarded and marginalized by these anti-trapping groups, they're simply hurting a relationship between the rest of the public and trappers to help people better understand where exactly the trapper is actively trapping in the wintertime and, and work with trappers to avoid areas, change areas, these sorts of things. So that to me is a huge loss of of the way these groups approach um, trapping by constantly making trapping look bad and trying to glorify 
what's not actually real. A couple months ago when I did a podcast with Doug Sheshon, the executive director of the Fur Institute of Canada, um, he called them ambulance chasers. You know, it's every time some little unfortunate incident happens somewhere in the country, the ambulance chasers are all over it saying, this is why trapping needs to be banned, da 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 like that, and trying to make trappers look bad, like I said, and dehumanize them and, and whatnot. And all that's doing is just breaking down relationships that could be positive relationships for multiple users to coexist on public land. So this whole story about pets being caught in the traps, it came about and it seems to have just died and disappeared as fast as it's come. It simply hasn't got traction like the the gruesome, inhumane, uh, warning graphic content stuff with the wolves that you know that was out there earlier in the week. And again, you know, I I think the public is getting tired of this and these constant um, bombarding attacks and in the news, and then donate to us to help protect wildlife, you know, the general model of, of um, show something emotional and then get people to give you money for, for that because you're somehow, you know, gonna, gonna stop it from happening. I, the interest is waning, I think, in some of these topics. If, if I'm reading this scenario right here, uh, you know, this week in, in Western Canada, these, these topics have just come and gone. They've fizzled. They haven't turned into, Big headline stories, ministers and premiers are not making statements about them. So they're obviously uh, just coming and going and uh, the public is just, you know, moving on. So in part, I hope that, you know, the role that we do and a lot of other people do in communicating the truth and the facts about this sort of stuff, that uh, it's starting to land on the ears of the public, their understanding caribou conservation, their understanding the need for um, predator control, their understanding the good work that trappers do, the fact that some of these issues are not really that big of a of a problem. And you know, at the end of the day, if you're in the backcountry with your dog skiing or cross country or or snowshoeing or whatever. You, you got to accept the risk that your dog's going to run out ahead of you and dart off into the trail because it smells something or sees the, the trapper's trail and get caught in a trap, or your dog needs to be on a leash. There's enough stories going on in this country of people's dogs being off leash, chasing birds in wetlands, getting attacked and bitten by wolves, being attacked. There was one last week of uh, being attacked and killed by a bear in, I think, Jasper National Park. Your dog's running loose ahead of you in the bush could just as easily be chasing a squirrel or a snowshoe hare or a fawn deer. So if that's what your dogs are doing, no sign beside any trap or trail leading into the bush to a trap is going to save your dog. If it's running out in front of you down the trail, smells some scent or some bait, and takes darts off into the bushes, the dog can't read. And by the time you get up there and see that that spot is signed and your dog's already caught in a trap, this whole notion that the fur bearers are putting forward to make signs at each trap location mandatory 
will not prevent pets from being caught in traps. If people's pets are running around free in the wintertime while they're in the backcountry on an active trap line. So I think the public's figuring some of this stuff out maybe. And they're like, well, put your dog on a leash then. And keep your cats out of my garden might be a message there as well. All right, folks, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we'll see you in the next episode.